today we're in the final month of this sermon series as we're preaching through the Gospel of John. And, or I'm sorry, we're preaching through the Gospel of Mark. I'll be talking from a little bit from both Gospels today. But as we go through this uh, final chunk of Mark, today the sun's rising on the final day of Jesus' crucifixion. And this is kind of a familiar story. It's likely one that you've read before. You may have read it many times before, even from childhood. And there is, I think it's important to say, there's a little bit of humility that is required sometimes when we re-engage a familiar story to kind of read it again and read it slowly and ask the Spirit to teach us fresh insight, to be taught by Jesus again. And I really want us, even though we might know this story, to see Jesus in it again. One of the things that I've been struck by as we've been going through Mark, is just how different Jesus is than me, how different he is from us. So work with me while we work through this text. I know it's hot. I have a good track record of being timely in these sermons, okay? So work with me while we work through the text. If I do it right, we're going to hear this story fresh and see Jesus in a, in a fresh light this time. Okay, have you ever been accused of something? Okay, I want you to think about what that accusation felt like. What were the emotions like? What did, you, what did it make you want to do? So let's say you were guilty. I bet if you think back on that time when you were guilty, even then, your first reaction was probably to defend yourself. If you're like most people, you had a rationalization for what you did wrong, right? It's human nature. Even when we're guilty, we justify our actions. In fact, Thinking about this, some of, the most, uh, some of the most famous expressions of innocence come from the guiltiest people. So think about this. Remember, if the glove does not fit, you must acquit. How about, America deserves to know the president is not a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. How about, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Like, those are all famous protestations of innocence from guilty people. When we're accused, what do we want to do? We want to defend, defend, defend. We always, right, we always have an explanation. We always have a rationale. We want to spin the truth in a way that presents us in the best light. And that's when we're guilty. Think about the last time you were falsely accused. We get even more indignant then. Being accused when you're innocent makes you even more eager to defend yourself. I have so several younger brothers. One of them is about 11 years younger than I am. So a little bit about my brother. He prides himself as being kind of a tough guy. He plays college baseball. He makes his own beef jerky. You know, he, uh, he prides himself in his facial hair. Uh, his first semester at college, he was falsely accused. Okay? He was blocked from the campus network. He was put on probation because they said he was, he was downloading illegal movies. He knew he wasn't downloading anything, so he wanted to go get things cleared up. Being accused didn't bother him so much as when they told him what he was being accused of. They said, yeah, we have records right here. You downloaded Sex in the City too." That's when he got really worked up. <laughs> When we're falsely accused of something, we get upset. We want to clear up any misunderstanding. Nobody gets any rest until we're cleared, right? So today, when we come to the Gospel of Mark, that's what's so strange and so surprising about this story. 
Jesus is on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. He's being accused, and yet his response is very strange. It's very different. He responds with silence. So we're going to answer the question today. Why was Jesus silent in the face of his accusers? Why was he silent in the face of his accusers? And what did that mean? What did the silence mean? Let's read the scripture together. This is Mark chapter 15, starting, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, as we gather today as your people around your word, we desire that we come underneath your word, that we come as people who want to see Jesus more clearly today, as he's revealed in Scripture. And we know that that can only happen through the power of the Spirit. So we ask that you would come, illuminate us by your Spirit, and speak through me as we open your word. Amen. Okay. The text starts out, as soon as it was morning. We need to remember, just for context here, the unbelievable physical pressure that Jesus is under. He's been up all night. He was in the garden praying, asking the Father to deliver him, to show, to show him if it's possible, is there some other way to accomplish this redemptive mission? He's betrayed by Judas, one of the twelve. He's been on trial during the middle of the night with the chief priests. His friends have all left him. He's physically exhausted. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the religious leaders, they band together, they tie Jesus up, and they hand him over to Pilate. Now, Pilate is not one of their cronies. Okay, this is a little bit of an unlikely pairing, where the religious leaders would be turning to Pilate for help in getting their agenda through. Pilate's a Roman governor. He's in town because of the Passover festival. And they, these chief priests and religious leaders, they have been accusing Jesus of religious blasphemy. 
But once they get to Pilate, they take a different angle. Pilate doesn't care about religious blasphemy. This is a Jewish quarrel. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about whatever Jesus said about the temple. That's not meaningful to him. So the religious leaders try to paint Jesus in a new light when they present him to Pilate. They try and paint him as some sort of political threat, some kind of rabble-rouser that's going to be a threat to Rome. They, they brought him to Pilate and said, he said he was the king of the Jews. And it's important to understand right now, this is not some type of world-class prosecution team. Okay? They do not have an airtight story. Mark tells us that as they bore false witness against him, their testimony did not agree. Like, they finally got their hands on Jesus, but once they did, they couldn't get the narrative straight. Some stood up and lied and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands in three days, and I will build another not made with hands. And Mark says, Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Like, you get the picture, they're all firing accusations, but it's not completely coherent. They couldn't get their story straight. And Pilate's a politician, okay? I imagine he's seen, he's seen his share of little disputes. I don't think it took him a long time to realize that Jesus' agenda right now was not to threaten the power of Rome. The text actually says later on in Mark 15 that Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests delivered him up. He knew that Jesus was in this position of being falsely accused, not because of his own wrongdoing, but because of the envy of the religious leaders. So when they deliver Jesus over to Pilate, he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' answer at this point is very cryptic. It's a little strange. He says, you have said so. It's kind of a guarded answer. In other words, Jesus is saying that what Pilate said is true, but what Pilate understands about what he said might not be the whole picture. He's saying yes, but he's leaving the understanding of what that means open to interpretation. One way of thinking about this answer would be, that's how you put it, but the truth is very different from what you might think. So the chief priests are accusing him of many things. And it seems like right now is the moment to fire back. Right? Pilate's starting to recognize the foolishness of these accusations. There doesn't seem to be a ton of coherence in what they're saying. And if this was you, wouldn't you want to make your most eloquent defense right now? How much would we want in this moment to fire back at our accusers with both guns blazing? That's how we would respond, right? If we had an opening and people were making an argument against us, we'd fire back with everything we had. And Jesus is a man with such eloquence that when he talked, people said, nobody ever spoke like this man before. Here's the golden opportunity. And he's silent in the face of their accusations. Does not say a word. Even Pilate's amazed. And that's something because Pilate has seen these type of scenarios before. He's seen criminals on trial. He's presided over his share of disputes. He's hearing the accusation of the chief priests. He knows that they're motivated out of envy. And he says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they are bringing against you? And the implication here is, don't you want to defend yourself? 
you might be able to help yourself if you opened up your mouth right now. But Jesus made no further answer. And Pilate was amazed. Jesus is silent. So silent that Mark, in this story, does not record another word out of Jesus through the entire crucifixion narrative until the scene of his death when he cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? However, the Gospel of John gives slightly more detail in the retelling of this encounter. John says, Pilate's kind of like flummoxed by this whole thing, and he goes back into his quarters, and he tries to get Jesus to talk again. And he says, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In other words, are you kidding me right now? Let's look at this situation. You have your hands tied behind your back. Those guys are ready to pin you up against the wall. I'm the only hope that you have right now, and you're not going to talk? Think about that. What a powerful lie from Pilate. I am the only hope you have right now. And how powerful right now would the desire have been for Jesus to show who has true authority, to defend himself against this boastful Roman politician. I'm reminded when I read this story of another time, a little earlier in Jesus' ministry, when the religious leaders were full of anger, anger at Jesus' teaching. And in that story, Jesus' teaching is so offensive that a crowd actually gathers and they take Jesus up to the hill at the, at the outskirts of town. And they take him all the way to the top of the town and their plan is just to chuck him off the side for blasphemy. Their plan was to take Jesus to the top and just put an end to his heresy right there. They get all the way up there, and Jesus just walks down. And the scripture says, almost mysteriously, that passing through their midst, he went away. The gospel doesn't really explain how it worked, but I love this image of Jesus. That the crowd gathers all fired up and indignant. They're ready to destroy him and toss him off the cliff. And they get all the way up to the top. And Jesus says, all right, are we done now? If it's cool with you guys, I'm going to go back down the hill and keep preaching the kingdom of God. Nobody knows how to respond to that type of authority. That's the authority and the power that Jesus has. And I love that scene. And part of me, I look at this scene and I say, I want to see that right now. I want to see Jesus pull, out, pull, pull his arms out of the ropes that are binding him and go Clint Eastwood on these guys and say, anyone that doesn't want to get killed better go out the back. But instead, silent. He's silent. He could have torn their arguments apart. He could have used this time for a spectacular demonstration of power. And instead, he said, Nothing. And in so doing, by staying silent, he fulfills the prophecy that John read earlier. Isaiah 53. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
Why is he silent? Is he silent because he has nothing to say? Is he silent because he's so meek and mild? Thinking about this, there are different reasons why a person might be silent. Number one, sometimes, you say, sometimes you're silent because you have absolutely nothing to say. You are completely tongue-tied. Number two, sometimes you're silent because you're so guilty, you can't even come up with an, ex- with an explanation. You don't even have an excuse. Number three, there's a silence because you know something that the person talking doesn't know. I imagine it might have been even a little bit unnerving right now, and Pilate probably had enough power that he wasn't often nervous to be trying to make this guy to talk. He's trying to threaten Jesus into a response. But Jesus is unintimidated. In John's account, Pilate said, You will not speak to me? Don't you know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority unless it had been given to you from above. And I want us to think about that response because it's really an amazing thing to say. It means that Jesus Jesus is saying that Pilate's authority is real. It had been given to him from God. His power to kill Jesus is real. And although it seems very strange to us, it is God-given. Pilate's authority is real and it is dangerous. He represents the most powerful nation on earth. The religious leaders... Their authority is real and it is dangerous. These threats are not make-believe. But, and hear this, their power is subordinate. It is derived. Their power comes from God. Pilate's power over Jesus right now does not compare to the power of God over Pilate. John Piper says it like this, Our comfort comes not from the powerlessness of our enemies, but from our Father's sovereign rule over their power. Our power does not come from the powerlessness of our enemies, but from our Father's power over their power. Jesus is silent right now, not because he's guilty. He's silent, not because he's tongue-tied. He is silent in this dark, dark moment because in his silence, he is still absolutely sovereign. It is God in his sovereignty who holds ultimate, power in his hands. And we get a snapshot of this in the subsequent story of Barabbas. Pilate realizes right now that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. His preference would be to wriggle out of this mess. And he has a custom that each year he would release one prisoner back to the people. So he looks at the crowd that's starting to gather outside, and he says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? It's very clear right now the Pilate realizes Jesus hasn't done anything deserving of crucifixion. But with the chief priests inciting them, the crowds cry out, Give us Barabbas! And if anyone's guilty, it's Barabbas. The man's already murdered someone. And yet the crowds are calling for the crucifixion of an innocent man right now, and they want Pilate to give freedom to a murderer. There's nothing right about this story. There is nothing right about it. 
This is a total and complete miscarriage of justice. This story could not look any worse. A murderer is going free, and an innocent man is being turned over to a violent, jeering, out-of-control crowd that's ready to see him killed. And just for good measure, because he's not going to get his way, Pilate has Jesus publicly scourged before he turns him over to the soldiers. This was a Roman form of torture with a weighted whip. Sometimes the scourging alone was enough to kill people. If Jesus had only received this scourging, it would have been enough to inflict physical damage on his body for the rest of his life. So again, I'm circling back to the question, why was he silent right now? What makes Jesus so different than us than when, that when he was accused, he could have rescued himself with eloquent words or with a powerful demonstration, and he was silent. He was silent because he was sovereign, because he is sovereign. And when Jesus' enemies gathered against him, they abused their God-given power. And in their abuse of power, they sinned. But in their sinning, God was able to save. In their sinning, in their abuse of power, the arm of the Lord was not restrained. In their abuse of power, they sinned. But in their sinning, God was able to save. As Christians, we often, I think, affirm the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But we do it in a way that's like really kind of shallow. We think that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is like another way of saying, well, in the end, things work out. We need an understanding of his sovereignty that's much more profound than that. We have this idea that like, oh, I was driving my car and I got rear-ended and my bumper broke off, but when I got hit, my glove compartment flew open and $100 came out. So you see, in the end, everything worked out. That's kind of like a shallow grasp of God's sovereignty. It's much more profound than that. What the wicked religious leaders and the corrupt Roman government meant for evil, God meant it for good. That is the story of Scripture, God working evil for good. Here's what I mean by that. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. He did it hundreds of years ago. And he said, my servant will be oppressed and afflicted. He will be silent before his accusers. And yet, what will be the result of it? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In his silence, in his silence, Jesus was sovereign. And in his work, many are accounted righteous. Many take on the innocence of the perfect Son of God. We see this foreshadowed right here in the story of Barabbas. What's happening here? An innocent man is taking the place and the guilty one's going free. Outside of the sovereignty of God, Pilate was right. He was the only hope that Jesus had. 
But the sovereignty of God is the anchor for the Christian's heart. It means He is God. There is no other. He does not change. His Word will stand. His counsel will endure. We live under the rule of a God who does not change and who is absolutely sovereign. And we find great comfort in that. My aim for you all today is not really to unpack the mystery of the way God's sovereignty interacts with human freedom or to provide answers for something that theologians have been kicking around for thousands of years. Instead, I want us here in this story to focus on Jesus alone in his darkest, darkest moment and see the unshakable confidence that he had in the sovereign rule of his father. He says, you would have no authority if it had not been given to you by God. You threaten me, but you are not outside the domain of my father. And so silently, he takes the place of Barabbas. The murderer goes free, and Jesus is handed over to the soldiers to be crucified. The power to do this comes from knowing that the Father can use even this to work out His plan of redemption. And what I want to tell you today, what I want us to hear, Seven Mile Road, is that we have that power and we have that promise. We know that for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose, He works all things together for good. We know that His goodness can most clearly be seen in the face of Jesus Christ on the cross. He worked for us a redemption that we would have been completely incapable of accomplishing. And He did it in His sovereignty, in a method that we never would have come up with. And this, today, is the anchor of our hope. We have been given a living hope. We have been caused to be born again into this hope. And that gives, that hope anchors our prayers. When we pray, think about this. When we pray, we have the audience of one whose counsel will stand forever. When we fear, when we worry, when we doubt, when we face the concerns that are part of being on this earth, the sovereignty of God is the anchor for our troubled hearts. We know that nothing happens outside of the realm of his domain. The thing that we're most afraid of, most worried about, most concerned about now, it is not outside the realm of God's authority. It is not outside the realm of God's authority. It is governed by him. And that hope, that hope that we see anchored in the cross, that is the cause of our faith and our humble worship. It grounds our heart in faith. It grounds our heart in worship. He works all things together for good. He is capable of doing that. So let your heart find great hope in that. Let's pray together.